So that's my friend Peter Pignon. He has, like he said, he's been a counselor for years, and he's going to come here to talk to us about dealing with depression and anxiety, right? And the best thing about him is that he loves Jesus, right? And so not only can he help us with the mental tools that we need to deal with the stresses of being isolated and quarantined and all the chaos that 2020 has welcomed into our lives, right? But he can also put it in a spiritual context, right? Put it within the, the framework of the New Testament that just amplifies the power of it, right? And so I'm really, really excited. Tell your friends. We're going to have sign-ups probably next week to where, so that we know that you're coming and all that. But here's the cool thing. This is free. I don't know if you yeah. caught that, right? No cost to you. We're able to put it on for free, okay? The only catch is we're not going to feed you. You're going to have to feed yourself, but that shouldn't be too hard because you can just drive home and have a sandwich, right? But tell your friends, anybody that you think needs to hear this, right? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have friends that have dealt with depression and anxiety, right? Maybe that friend's yourself. Think of how much work the Lord can do, right? It's going to be really good. I'm really looking forward to it. Anyway, all right. So, everyone doing okay tonight? Yeah? Yeah? Sorry we had to, like, come in from the side door. It's like everything changes every week you come in here, right? It's just keeping you on your toes, right? But, uh, yeah, so uh, if you, like, right behind those doors back there, don't look, but it's all, like, taped out, like, and in, in covered in plastic. It looks like the set of, like, Dexter or something, you know what I mean? I, like, was super creeped out when I walked in there. Anyway, um, so anyway, yeah, um, thanks for rolling with it. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. And if you don't know what a publican is, it's a tax collector. I just like the fancy word, and I'm going to enlighten your minds with a new word. You're welcome, right? There you go. Like everyone's like, Republican? Did he say Republican? Is he coming after me? You know, like, no, that's no, not that. Don't worry. Or tax collector, okay? Um, so you can find that scripture in Luke chapter 18, right? Verses 9 through 14. So I'll give you all a minute to find that in your Bibles. And if you don't have your Bible or you don't have internet access to Google it, then uh, we'll have it up on the screen for you. All right. So starting in verse 9. Luke writes, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, I, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come in to our lives, into our hearts and minds. We give you the right and the authority to change about us what you will tonight. We love you and we trust you. Amen. So, have y'all ever had one of those moments in your life where you got to humble somebody? Have you ever had that? Like, it's one of the pinnacles of my life, I can tell you that. So, um, this is going to shock you, but I was not very good at sports, okay? Like, I know you're looking at me and thinking, no, world-class athlete, Scroggins. 
No way, I don't believe it. Powerlifting, right? No. Um, I was not good at sports, but I was one of those dummies that was like, I'm going to play football, right? Like, I, I, I watched the movie Rudy and just assumed that's how life was going to go. And it was only a matter of time before I'm at Notre Dame and they're carrying me off the field, right? That's what I thought. So I was on the football team for years, right? Like, all through junior high and high school, I was on the football team. First team bench warmer, right? I could warm some benches, right? But... Okay, I maybe lied a little bit. There was one sport that I was actually good at, right? And it was wrestling, okay? And I'm not talking like the WWE or Nacho Libre kind of stuff. Like, I'm talking about like the Olympic stuff where it's not cool and you're kind of rolling on a mat with another dude while you're both wearing tights and nobody's really certain about what's going on, right? It was that kind, okay? I was actually good at that. I I was actually kind of good at that. And I remember, so our wrestling coach was also the offensive line coach for our high school because it was kind of a smaller school, right? And one day, one day, the offensive line guys were, like, picking on me all practice, right? All practice. They're just like, whatever, Scroggins, you're stupid. And they're, like, pushing me over. Or, like, they would literally pick me up and drop me in other places, you know, because I weighed, like, 50 pounds less than I do now, if you can imagine that, right? I was so skinny. Like, even Ethiopians were like, nah, give this guy a sandwich. I don't need it. He needs it more, right? It was that bad. Anyway, so... So my coach, right, Coach David Henson, changed my life. He looked at, looked at what was going on, and he called all three of us out. He's like, you, you three, come here, come here. And I'm like, great. Now I'm going to get in trouble for getting bullied, right? This is lame, all right? And he goes, you three, after practice, meet me in the mat room. And I'm like, oh, gosh, great. So after football practice, you know, we're all still sweaty and stuff. You still kind of smell like shoulder pads. And if you've played high school football, you know what I'm saying, right? That just, there's a really unique funk about it, right? And anyway, so we get in there, and my coach goes um, to the other two guys. He's like, ah, so you guys think it's funny to pick on a little guy, huh? And they're like, no, no, coach. And like, well, that's what you're doing. And then my coach looks at me and goes, Scroggins, show them what a high amplitude throw means. Okay, so these dudes were our starting offensive guard and offensive tackle. They were big dudes, like over six foot, over 200 pounds. And here I am, like Gumby size, like buying clothes in the kids section small, right? But my coach had taught me how to make, how to do a high amplitude throw. And what that is, is where you grab somebody and you throw them completely over your body, right? Just flip over backwards. And I did it to both of them. Sent them flying across the room, right? They're just like, oh, what the? You know? I just grab them, flip, boom. And they're like across the room. These giant dudes just go over my head and go flying and tumbling, right? And my coach was like, he has the right to do that to you whenever he wants now. Right? After that, they, they had a certain level of respect for me because they knew that any time I could just throw them across the room if I wanted, right? They weren't going to outrun me. They were offensive linemen. You know what I mean? Where my old lineman at, huh? Y'all know what I'm saying. Y'all don't like running. It's okay. We can be, we can be honest, you know? Right? It was like one of those awesome moments. Like, I, I've never had a moment like that in my life where you just got to go, oh, you're here? Now you're here. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, you're here? Nah, there's a couple notches down. And it felt so good, right? I loved it. And there's just something about humility that's very unique, right? Right? And I think that's kind of... The context, kind of one of the ideas, obviously, that Jesus wants us to pull out of this parable. But before we dig into the actual parable, we have to dig into the what? Context, right? 
Y'all remember that? Remember context from last week? You're not going to forget it. Context is so important, okay? So I want to look at the context of Luke really quickly, and then from that we're going to tease out what Jesus is saying in this gospel, okay? So the cool thing about Luke is that it is absolutely brilliantly designed. Okay, you may not know this or have picked up on it if you've read through the gospel, but Luke has divided up his gospel into three rough sections, right? You have basically chapters 1 through 9, and what he's doing in, that chap- in those chapters is he's showing that Jesus is like the greater Moses, right? He's, he's, like the, uh, he's like better than Moses. He's better than Elijah. He's everything you could hope for in a lawgiver and in a prophet. Right? And then the next section, right, your chapter is kind of 9 through 19 or so, right, is Jesus, the whole time, Jesus is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, right? And he's kind of making this journey, okay? And then at the end of the book, the rest of the chapters is Jesus in Jerusalem. And what that's meant to do is to show, like, you have Jesus giving a sermon on a mountain and giving a new law of his kingdom, just like Moses gave law from a mountain, right? And then journeying into the promised land. Does that make sense? So the very, like, gospel structure, like the written narrative structure of Luke, is reinforcing the gospel of Jesus. Does that make sense? Isn't that awesome? And the whole thing, he's trying to reinforce this concept, this thing that that is in uh, Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy 34.10, right? It's right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. The question is like, hey, is someone better than Moses ever going to come along? And Luke is trying to answer that. He's trying to show you Jesus is that person. That person that you've been hoping for since like, you know, the, the second book of the, the third book of the Bible. That person, yeah, he's here. Isn't that cool? Right? And then another thing you can notice is that as Jesus goes along his journey, as he gets closer to Jerusalem, he gets a little more spicy with his parables. Right? And actually, I made a graph for you so that you can visualize what I'm talking about. Um, But as Jesus gets closer, he's telling more and more pointed parables. Does that make sense? He's getting more and more pointed about his parables, being more and more honest and direct with the Pharisees. I don't know if we'll get that slide up there or not. Somewhere? Nope. Oh, there it is. I made that graph myself, in case you're wondering. There it is. So you have on the bottom, miles to Jerusalem, and on the top, spiciness, okay? So by the time he gets in Jerusalem, he is 100% spicy, okay? That's where he's like, he's throwing salt on people's wounds and stuff, clearing out the temple, right? Okay, so the set of parables that we're, the parable we're looking at is the middle of a set of three parables, Okay? This is all context, and I know it's really boring. I'm sorry. But it's the middle of a set of three parables that are given on the road to Jerusalem. Okay? And he's only about a chapter away from being in Jerusalem, so the spice level is pretty high. Okay? We're not talking like Carolina Reaper, but probably like a, like a Scottish habanero. You know what I'm talking about? He's probably that level of spice. Right? Um, I don't know how many Scoville units that is. But uh, there's this... There's a structure to Hebrew thought, right? The way that the Hebrews talked and thought about stuff, there's a structure called chiastic structure, okay? Chiastic structure. And you don't have to remember the name, but what you do have to remember is that in the chiastic structure, it is different from our Western thinking, right? Our Western thinking, it's like 
we like that graph, you know. We want the pinnacle to be at the end. Okay, the last thing you say is, should be the strongest thing that you say. But in the chiastic structure, the middle thing you say is the strongest thing you say. Right? So think of like a pyramid, right, where that point is in the middle, and that's the most important. That's the capstone. But the ascending and descending sides of what you're talking about help inform that capstone. Does that make sense? And this is where we're at, is that this parable is the middle parable of three. Isn't that interesting? And you may think that I'm kind of, kind of cheating here, because right before it, you have the parable of the persistent widow. And then right after, you have Jesus talking about, hey, let the kids come. Right? Let the kids come to me. Uh, and you're like, Scroggins, that's not quite a parable. But is it, is it though? Because he does say... Hey, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you have to be like this kid. And that's a parable, right? You have to be like a child. That, that's a mini parable. You give me half credit for it? Yeah? Okay, cool. All right, so the persistent widow, right? Uh, Jesus is like just talking, and he wants to teach the disciples how to pray and not lose heart, right? And in the story, there's a widow that's in need of legal protection from an adversary. But her only recourse of like hope is this judge that's like, Jesus says he's just a jerk, Right? This judge just doesn't care. He's, he's known for having no respect for anybody. Right, But she annoys him so much that the judge says to himself, if she doesn't shut up, I'm going to die. Right? I've got like some talkers in my family. Sometimes they make me feel like that. You, know? you have five kids and they all start talking. You're like, if they don't shut up, I'm going to die. Like, I, I, I empathize with that statement on a deep foundational level. You know? I think the slang is, that resonates with me, right? <laughs> so this woman annoys him, annoys the judge, until the judge gives her what she wants. So seemingly, the story that we should learn here is that if we pray hard enough or pray long enough, you can move the cold, unjust, hardened heart of God. But that's not the Jesus that I read about, right? Seems kind of weird. And then the next one, the little mini parable, is Jesus says that we have to be like a child, right? So the story is like people are bringing their kids and their babies to be blessed by Jesus. And he's like kissing them and loving on them and all this stuff. And he says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, right? But let me ask you, how does a child receive something? Right? Like, if you, if you want to give a child something, how do they receive it? Any number of ways. Right? I can tell you from experience, not always kindly. Right? Uh, if you try and give my oldest son any form of vegetable, he will look at you like you're trying to murder him. Right? Like, no, this is sustenance. And he's like, you know? I don't get it. Whatever. I'm just trying to live. Right? So, is Jesus saying that we got to be like that? Is that what he's saying about... See what happens when you remove these things from their context? You can walk walk away with some really awful ideas about God. But here's the point that I think Jesus is trying to make, is that a child receives whatever the parent gives it. Right? A child doesn't necessarily have a say in what they get. They kind of get what they get. And then they don't throw a fit. I've said that to my kids before, you know? Y'all can just put that one in your back pocket, you know, down the road when parenting's a thing for you. Just remember that. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Okay. 
Actually, some of y'all could probably learn that too. Hey, oh, <laughs> where's that spice graph, huh? How close to Jerusalem am I? Anyway, um, so how does this help us understand the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee? Well, Luke opens it up, he frames it for us, and he says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Right? So, it doesn't say that Jesus is talking to Pharisees directly, but he's totally talking to Pharisees. You know what I mean? Like, come on. And it's as if Jesus was telling the parable about the persistent widow, and then heard the thoughts or perceived the thoughts of other people around him, and then said, you know what, another thing, I'm going to tell you this parable, right? Because couldn't you just see that person sitting there listening to the parable of the persistent widow and going, ah, I'm set, I pray all the time. Oh, I bother God for stuff all the time. Surely God will listen to my prayers because I'm such a much better person than everyone around here. Right? So what Jesus is highlighting in this parable is a common and really just insidious evil mistake that a lot of us are fed or absorb or even make intentionally when we confuse two different concepts. When we confuse grounds with conditions. Okay? These are kind of legal terms, but here, I'll break it down for you. Ground, a ground for something is a reason for which. Right? A reason for which. A condition is not without which. Okay? So here's a, a, like something to help you understand it. Like an example of like a murderer. Let's say somebody like stabs somebody and it's all bad. And like he's arrested and he's standing before the judge. And he, he looks at the judge and he goes, look, judge, um, I said sorry to the family. And I like cried when I did it. I really cried and I was sad. And I feel really bad. I feel, I, and I promise I won't stab people anymore. Like my stabbing days are behind me. Um, and I've made restitution. Like I, I paid them money uh, to say sorry as well. And I super duper promise there's no more stabbing people in my future. Now let me go. See, what that criminal is doing is standing on the grounds of his accomplishments. He's standing on the grounds, right? He's saying, the reason for your forgiving me is all of this stuff that I've done. Does that make sense? A condition would be more like this. The judge standing before the criminal and going, look, no more stabbing people. Say sorry and mean it and make restitution. And then I'll let you go. Right? I mean, I would have a discussion with that judge about his concept of justice, but that's besides the point. But do you understand that? So then his forgiveness, his freedom, is contingent. There's conditions upon it. Not without these things will you be free. Is that cleared up for you? So, a Pharisee could read the parable of the persistent widow... And think that because of their actions, and because of their persistent sacrifice and persistent giving at the temple, that the kingdom of God and salvation would be theirs. God, I've sacrificed, I've given, I'm not like these evildoers. Forgive me. Give me the mercy I deserve. Y'all tracking? 
But here's the trick. Here's the reason why we have to take this parable in context with everything around it. It's because we can also read what the publican, the tax collector, did and arrive at the same conclusion. And this is the danger that many of us that have grown up in the church or been in the church for a while, this is the danger we fall into. We think that if we just pray the right type of prayer, if I, if I don't look at heaven and if I beat my chest, then God will forgive me. See, God, I cried. I felt really bad. Now give me the mercy I deserve. You see that? If I pray and talk about how terrible I am, God will hear me and answer me. Let me ask you, have you ever talked to somebody that has walked away from Jesus? That has walked away from the church? And one of the reasons is that God seems cold and distant? It's probably because they think that. I have to talk about how horrible I am in order for him to love me. But what they've done is they confused grounds with conditions. Does that make sense? So if we tie everything together and we bring it all into focus, it leads us to what I think is the real point of this parable. Is that it is not about the content of their prayers, but the content of their hearts. It is not about the content of their prayers, but the content of their hearts. If there's nothing else that you, you hear tonight, if there's nothing else that you understand from this, let it be this. We as people want to draw lines between who is good and who is bad, who is right and who is wrong. But God does not draw any of those lines. He draws a line between the humble and the proud. Did you catch that? We want to organize each other into what camp we vote for, or how we feel on certain topics, or what we do on Friday night. But God doesn't care about that. He's more concerned about the content of your heart. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In James it says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. See, the thing that all three of these people have in common, the widow, the tax collector, and the children, is that they all put themselves in a position where they had no more rights to claim anything. They had no grounds to stand on. They were at the complete mercy of the conditions that an authority would put upon them. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing? Not one of them could say, I deserve better because of who I am or what I did. Culturally speaking, all three of those people were the disgusting other. They were the repulsive outsider of society. Tax collector, they betrayed their people. So a tax collector under Rome was usually somebody from that people group that Rome had hired and said, you collect the taxes. We want this amount, and whatever you take above that can be yours. 
They're betraying their own people. A widow had no rights. A woman's value at that time was tied completely to the status of her husband. And when that husband was gone, all of her status was gone. Look at how unfavored she is because God has taken away her husband. And a child was only worth the labor that they could produce on the farm. Not much more. All three of them were the outsiders of society that had no righteousness Nothing that they could stand on. And we're at the complete mercy of others. In the Gospel of Matthew, we find Jesus standing on a mountain. He looks out and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That sounds like humility. See, humility, humility isn't thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Humility is not thinking less about yourself, but thinking about yourself less. That publican, he wasn't thinking about himself. He didn't make some big flowery speech about how much he had done. He just said, God, have mercy on me. So if we can have the band come back up. With the dividing lines that God draws... The question is, are you humble or are you proud? Not, are you good or are you bad? So I want to ask you, are you willing to become poor in spirit? Are you willing to become emptied of self? Are you willing to become meek? To be like the cultural outsider? that has no rights, that never stands up for themselves? And you know what that means? That when you get slapped on one cheek, you turn the other. When somebody asks for your coat, you give them your shirt too. When somebody asks you to carry something, you go twice the distance that they ask. The humble. The person that does those things, they're thinking less about themselves. Does that make sense? So, do you find yourself on the side of the proud? Do you rely on your churchy accomplishments? Or maybe you think if you just pray in the right way, with enough tears, if you feel enough then you'll be justified. God, look at the tears I cried. Why aren't you answering? Or are you willing to be truly humble, knowing that you are the complete and total mercy of God, not willing to stand on the grounds of your accomplishments, 
But the beautiful thing is that in that position, like the widow, God is your advocate. And he will give justice. Like the children, he's your only source of provision. He will give you what you need. Like the tax collector, he can give you the mercy that your heart needs. And these are the conditions that God puts on us. To be so emptied of self that we don't even demand that we be allowed into heaven. But to completely and totally trust our king to do what is just. Are we willing to live our lives like that? If the answer is no, I'm afraid of what side of the line you stand on. So we're going to have time for reflection because I know that this is not a fun thing to think about. The way that we use our grounds as a weapon against God to try and move that cold, hard heart that he has and not trusting that he actually wants and desires to give us provision and be our advocate and bless us. But his condition for that is humility. It's not about the right prayers. It's not about coming to Chi Alpha or church or tithing. It's not about any of that. It's about the content of your heart. So as we sing these next couple of songs, I want you to pray about the content of your heart. I want you to think about the content of your heart. I want you to take that whole trash out of your mind about good and bad and think about humble and proud. Are you haughty? Are you proud? Or are you humble? And if you're not humble, and you're really proud of yourself, then you need to spend some time and ask for God to give you a glimpse of reality. Ask the Holy Spirit to come into your mind and your heart and paint a picture of what you're really like. Because He only speaks the truth. And He will tell you the truth about yourself because He loves you. One of my old preacher friends says, God loves you just the way you are, but not enough to leave you that way. See what I'm saying? Let's pray.